The Cinders of Dezu, written and read by Oliver Tonic. A tyrant king, a missing girl, and a journey through a perilous world. Join me for this completed sci-fi fantasy novel read as an audio series. Enjoy the story from here on, or binge from the beginning with the first episode. The episodes are now available on YouTube and Spotify as a podcast. Like and subscribe if you enjoy. My audiobooks are totally free. If you'd like to donate to support my writing, though, check out my Patreon in the description. And now, back to the tale. Chapter 20 The Tafferties. The icicle rotated and grew thicker before it split into four identical pieces. Then, like a kaleidoscope, the four rotated, creating a spinning circle that defied the laws attempting to pull it to the forest floor. Cairo had his hands out trying to mimic the movements he was creating. It was easier somehow to help his mind visualize the motions before they were rendered. Julian floated down behind him with a bounce in his step as his feet hit the ground. Whoa, bro, he said as he spotted the floating ice design. Right, said Cairo. I'm like Iceman now. Well, I mean, you're more like Frozone. Cairo turned to look back at him. Dude, why are you like this? What? Is that racist again? Yes. Cairo looked back at what he was doing. Huh. Julian put his hands on his hips as he continued to look at the spinning shard. So it just comes out of the air? At least partially, I think so. The more humid, the better, I think. When you were flying us here, the air seemed thinner. And not just for breathing, but something about the moisture? I was way more aware of it. Julian stood next to him as he watched Cairo create a second set of icicles and floated into the first, creating a sphere. I bet you never thought your straight A's in science were preparing you for this. Cairo smiled. <laughs> and I bet you regret sneaking the copy off me instead of learning about gravity. Julian scoffed. You were very good at making sure I never got away with that. Cairo laughed and shook his head. I'm serious, man, said Julian. We were little, and you were a tiny little goody two-shoes. Wouldn't let me copy off your work to find out what two plus three was. Because you needed to learn it yourself, Cairo said. Yeah, and I hated you. You finished your test early and brought it to the teacher, and I was still slumped over trying to figure it out. They both laughed. Cairo combined the rotating icicles into one large one and started separating it into tiny ice cubes. He rotated the ice cubes, creating a shifting abstract sculpture. And I would have kept hating you if you hadn't done what you did next, you remember? Cairo laughed to himself. Julian had a funny habit of telling the same stories over and over again. It was an old man trait in a young man's body. This one was one of Julian's favorites. It obviously meant a lot to him, so we let him continue. What happened? He asked. Julian smirked. 
You leaned over to my desk when the teacher wasn't looking, and I just knew you were going to give in and give me the answers. But you still didn't. You remember what you did? Cairo started slowly forming the floating ice cubes into a shape like a rudimentary cloud with an animal head on it. I made you count the sheep. You made me count the sheep, Julian said, throwing his arms up. There were five sheep next to the problem that I could have counted the whole time, and you made me count them to put two and three together. Cairo kept silently laughing. He always told the story with the same pun. After my grades went up, my mom never wanted me to stay over anyone else's house but yours. I'm sorry, man, Cairo said, dropping the cubes from their sheep shape and stacking them on the ground like a Jenga tower. I'm not, said Julian. Because even though you were a goody-good, you weren't a snob about it. That's why you were cool enough to hang out with me. Cairo nodded sarcastically. Thanks, bruh. Yep, don't mention it, he said, shaking him by the shoulder. I really won't, Cairo said as a snowball formed in his hand. Cairo turned to him and Julian returned a smile with his tongue between his teeth. He was greeted with a face full of powder. That's ridiculous, Julian said. Year-round snowball fights? Cairo dropped his cubes, and the small pillar fell as he started lobbing more snowballs at him. Julian backed up and put his hand out. The snowball stopped its acceleration and shot back towards Cairo. This time it was him with a face full of snow. No. No way. He said in disbelief. Hey man, you can move ice. I can move that and everything else too. Nah, man, I'm not losing a snowball fight with ice powers. Kyra started a hail of white shots at him over and over as he chased him through the trees. Julian kept trying to catch each one and reverse their momentum with gravity. Kyra made a ball so large he could barely palm it and launched it at his friend. Julian ducked and it struck Talia in the face. Julian stumbled upright and Cairo covered his mouth. The snow quickly dissolved into a steam on Talia's cheeks. She raised her eyebrows. Thanks for that. Talia, I am so sorry. I found them. It's this way. She started heading down a thin trail. The boys followed quickly behind. Shortly, they found themselves in a small camp comprised of a tent and several makeshift stations for washing and cooking. Next to the campfire sat a young man. He was on a log seat, leaning over with something in his hands. He hardly noticed them come out of the trees. Corliss? Talia said. The young man looked up. He was pale-skinned with ears that looked a bit more narrow and sharp than Cairo and Julian were used to seeing. His eyes were glistening in the light of the fire. He sniffed. Talia? Corliss had not spoke. It was the voice of a woman. The three looked up to see someone in a functional yet fine black dress emerge from the tent. The woman looked to be in her forties. Her skin was also pale, but she had sharper pointed ears. Her face broke up and tears soaked her blue freckles as she saw Talia and ran to her. Talia rushed to meet her and embraced her tightly. I'm so sorry, Lena. The woman sobbed under her shoulders as Julian and Cairo approached, but stopped just short of the fire. The young man looked up at them. Cairo nodded and gave a soft and sympathetic smile. Julian gave a quick, awkward nod. 
The young man just gazed at them a moment before looking back into the flames. The sobs of the woman filled the air. If he's... I know he can't be. I can't imagine what he must have felt, what he was thinking when... Talia held her close again, and she released her muffled cries into her shirt. The boys continued to stare at the young man, unsure of what to say or do. The cries quieted down, and Talia stepped over the log to sit next to him. The young man she had called Corliss was turning something white over and over in his hands. Talia rubbed his back. Hey, big guy, she said softly. Corliss continued to look at the figure. Cairo glanced up briefly to the woman in the black dress who had her hand over her mouth, staring at Corliss. Her tears were still quietly coming. It's okay to cry, Talia said. You need to. This is what they're for. Corliss looked at her. His expression was blank. Then slowly, his face broke up the longer he looked into her eyes. She held him as he leaned into her and wept profusely. I'm sorry I couldn't be there, Talia whispered. No, Corliss said with a sniff. You can't be everywhere. He leaned up and his expression quickly changed. He looked with intensity again into the fire like he was keeping it lit with his stare alone. It was him. It was always going to be him, he said. Talia leaned over and reached for his hands. She brought them to her lap and opened them to reveal a white wooden figure, expertly carved with fur detail and a ferocious snarl across his face. I found it near the burnt-up wagon, he said. The box, it was burned on top, too, but the inside was okay. He reached into his pocket and pulled out a folded-up piece of paper. He handed it to Talia, who unfolded it and started to read. We had fought last time we talked, said Corliss. It was over something stupid. He wiped his face with his shirt sleeve. It's so much like him to get me something like this to make things better. He carefully took the figure from her and started to turn it over again, but thoughtfully this time as he was inspecting it. When I was little, my favorite bedtime story was about the Battle of Moonlight. Only Dad would call him the Great White Wolf instead of a Shadow Dog. Moonlight was always the hero. He made up some story about him being the most special shadow pup in the litter and how he grew up to meet his final challenge against Orion. All the other kids in all the other towns knew the story and its ending. For them, it was about victory. But since my hero was Moonlight, it always had a sad ending. One where the wolf couldn't finish the job. Talia had rested her hand with the note in her lap. Corliss took it from her and put it back in his pocket. An ending where my family had to live in fear. Cairo could see Corliss' knuckles turning white as he squeezed the body of the white figurine. He doesn't deserve the air he breathes, he said, looking to Talia again. 
You make sure he pays for what he did. You know I can only fly half as fast as my father, and it's no use against him. If you ever find a way, like you said you would, if you find a way, you burn his lungs from his chest. You hear me? Talia solemnly nodded. Corliss pointed to himself. You do it for me. You do it for Mom. You do it for my dad and everyone else he's taken away. I will, she said. Corliss stared at her before nodding. Good. He looked down at the figure. Maybe then I can tell my kids bedtime stories about you. Ones where they don't go to sleep afraid. They were all quiet again for a while before Corliss returned to weeping. Talia rubbed the back of his hair before pulling him close. Kyra realized he hadn't seen this side of Talia yet. Corliss couldn't be more than 14 or 15. It seemed to be the kind of affection you give to a little brother. She had seemed so hard on the outside. It started to make more sense. He could see the person that was helping them. After Maslinga crashed beneath the lake's surface from his injuries, Talia had insisted Julian fly them to this side of the lake before continuing their journey to the palace. She said she didn't know the exact spot and opted to go on foot so she could track her destination the rest of the way. It was all just to find these two. Following the tears, Talia let the family know she had better and more hidden accommodations for them not far from their location another safe house courtesy of Harbor and Harper. Julian assisted in floating some of the family's things once they were packed up. Lena and Corliss were clearly accustomed to moving around quickly and frequently due to the speed at which they were able to break down and store their camp, though Corliss remarked how much easier these things used to be to transport on his father's cart. The boys got to know the Tafferties on the way. Lena had met her husband after he had established himself as a renowned merchant. He had awakened in her the itch to travel and see the land after she had heard the stories he would tell the locals whenever he would visit. He was always good at holding a crowd. She got to know this merchant and storyteller on a personal level and was always excited when his route would bring him back to her village. She had fallen for him long before she knew it herself. It was her parents who basically pushed her out of the house to marry him, knowing their daughter was never happier than when he came around. Micah left a good impression. He was a crowd-pleaser, but not arrogant. A salesman, but no swindler. His integrity was clear, and they knew wherever he traveled they would often see their daughter again. She didn't know he was human until after she finally admitted how she felt. It was only then that he let her in. He had jumped at the opportunity to be with her when she finally told him. When he had told her his secret, it was clear why he hadn't made the first move. He hadn't wanted to volunteer for a life on the run. Micah's philosophy was to hide in plain sight. No Vin Carsey would make himself so known to the world the way he did. Even still, if they married, it was on the condition that no one besides her parents ever knew he had a family, not even after they had a son. It had worked for many years. Micah had been smart. 
He saw the danger before it was clear to most of the Vincarsi population. He worked hard to maintain his secret. The cover story for Lena and Corliss was that they were separate vendors who sold clothing dye, a reasonably substantial part of the family's inventory. They came into towns early to sell, and then Micah would follow shortly after. They also left at staggered times, too. Usually no one noticed, but if they were ever seen together, usually in travel, the cover was that Lena and Corliss were his sister and nephew. Corliss had grown up understanding the importance of staying hidden. It was just at the cost of not having close friendships with kids his age. The safe house looked essentially the same as the one Cairo and Julian had abandoned, save for a few minor differences. When they arrived, Julian carefully floated the family's things inside. Afterwards, they enjoyed some of the food in the safe house's stores along with the thank-you meal prepared by Lena. Cairo enjoyed hearing the stories from the Tafferty's, but Julian seemed to be growing more and more uneasy as the sun started to go down. Even Talia noticed. She insisted they not put the family out as they only had two beds and they needed to get settled in their new home. Tolly went into the safe house closet and collected some very sturdy tree hammocks. Harper always kept them stowed away in the same spot in every house. Tolly had promised she would bring them back in the morning. After saying their goodbyes and lighting the family's torches for the night, Talia led the three of them into the forest a ways until she found a very tall and wide tree with thick and strong-looking branches. Julian floated them up into its canopy at Talia's request. She went to work showing them the safest and most comfortable spots to suspend themselves and how to safely secure their hammocks. Kairos ended up lower in the canopy, right next to Julian on his right. Talia was to his left, but a bit farther away and just above him. She had picked a spot where it was easy to walk and climb between each hammock just in case. Their sacks were hanging near each of their sleeping spots. After they had all settled, Cairo found himself staring down at the ground below. He could see the scattered glow of the spinning ribbon creatures on the forest floor. There were several large tree limbs below him, but it was still a daunting prospect to fall. What do you think? We're like 20 to 25 feet up? He whispered to Julian. Probably, he said, looking up through the branches above him. I probably shouldn't be looking. She said not to look. Can't look down too much in a hammock. I'm going to flip out of this thing. Mm-hmm, he said. Cairo leaned up and looked over at him. What, you aren't afraid of heights now? Just because you're a gravity master? Something like that, Julian said, still looking up. Cairo scoffed. All right, what's up, man? You got superpowers yesterday and you're crazy bummed out all of a sudden. Julian turned over and looked at his friend. Isn't it super weird, he whispered, that we spent a whole day moving some random family? Cairo frowned. Um, I mean, kinda, I guess. Shouldn't we be on our way to get Reyna? She's wasting our time. I can fly us there now. She just has to tell us where to go. She made us come here and do superhero U-Haul. Cairo's eyebrows lowered. Dude, that's pretty messed up. Corliss just lost his dad. You didn't even know Corliss until half a day ago. Or are we helping him instead of your cousin? Cairo frowned again and didn't say anything. Just 
Keep an eye on her, man, Julian whispered. I know you're into her, but we don't know what her deal is. Cairo scoffed before shooting a look in the direction of Talia to see if she heard. She was busy fiddling with something on her hammock in the dark. He looked back at Julian. I am not. I mean, I'm... Bro, you know I know every girl you're into. You're into her. Julian started to adjust to lay on his side. Just don't let it blind you. He said as he turned over and away from him. Cairo sat looking at the back of his friend's head. He thought about his words. He had grown accustomed to the dark being lit only by the moon and the stars, so when he saw a yellow light begin to glow over his shoulder, he was startled. He turned around to see Talia with a flickering flame floating just above her between her face and her hands, which were actively working on something. Cairo squinted. What is that? he asked. Talia stopped and looked over at him. She raised her eyebrows and then lifted it for him to see. It was a face mask. It was hard to make out its colors in the dark, but it looked to reflect the colors of the flame that lit it. It was shaped like the face of a cat, and along with the color of flames, it also had the artistic flourish of fire. Cairo couldn't be sure, but it looked like it also had spots. You going to a fancy ball or something? Cairo said. It came out as a joke, but then he realized he didn't know anything about this place. Perhaps they actually did have masquerade balls. <laughs> no, Talia said with a smile as she went back to messing with it. It's my night dweller mask. The strap on it is giving me some trouble again. Cairo raised his eyebrow. Night dweller? Talia nodded, still focused on the strap. They were old heroes, people who risked their lives in the night to take care of travelers on the roads before the torches in the walls of the cities went up. She shrugged. They were warriors during certain conflicts, too, but I lean more toward the life-saving variety. Hmm, said Cairo. So you're saying you protect people at night? Yeah, if I see them, she said. There are certain spots I patrol some nights. Long stretches between towns where travelers sometimes get lost or stuck. I just make sure they don't get overtaken in the dark. Wow, said Cairo. You're actually playing superhero. Playing what? She asked. A superhero, like a... Cairo could see she was focused and stuck trying to thread something that was particularly stubborn. To, uh... So did night dwellers wear masks? Talia smiled and gave a small chuckle. No, no, that's just me. I cause too much trouble to show my face. If I'm saving people, I don't want them to be able to point me out at the markets. It gets to be pretty obvious you're a Vincarsi when you start fighting off shadow dogs in the dark. Cairo nodded. So, why a cat? Talia put the mask down and gave him a curious look. Why do you want to know all this? Cairo shrugged. I mean, how could I not? You're incredibly interesting. Talia gave him a soft smile embedded in steadily reddening cheeks. I'm really not. Cairo looked skeptical. How can you say that? You're a fire-powered travel guide night watcher or whatever. It doesn't get more interesting than that. 
Talia shook her head. Things here have me beat. This world is full of far more interesting things to explore. Cairo leaned his head to the side. Well, right now, I'm exploring you. Talia looked at him a moment, her soft smile still on her face before turning back to work on the mask. It's from an old story my mother used to tell me. A true story from our history. It's about a knight and a maiden far away. There was a flaming fire cat that was burning the maiden's village. The knight came to stop it. Oh, said Cairo. How does it go? Talia shook her head as she seemed to finish her work on the mask. She leaned forward and started to open up the cloth bag she had hanging on a branch at the end of her hammock. My mom always told it better, and we need to sleep tonight if we want to travel tomorrow. She slipped it in and laid back down. But suffice it to say, I relate to the cat. I'm burning this place down, and I'm not letting anyone stop me. The hovering flame above her bed went out with a sweep of her hand. Good night, Cairo, she said before turning over and settling. Cairo had trouble sleeping that night, and it wasn't just the scurrying of what he knew must have been several very hungry shadow dogs on the ground below him. He was adding up a few things in his head. Julian had told him not to be blind. He was trying to keep his eyes and his ears open when it came to Talia, and he couldn't get one of the last things she had said out of his mind. Why did she call it our history? And why was a mother from Earth telling her daughter stories from Dezu? Hey guys, it's Oliver. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to like and subscribe if you want to hear more. Give me your thoughts in the comments if you're watching on YouTube. And check my channel to make sure you're caught up on the latest episode. I'll have regular episodes up until all chapters of this story are fully released, so stay tuned.